Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Peter Harnick. Peter is the co-founder of the Rails to Trails Conservancy, a national nonprofit organization founded in 1986 that advocates for investment in bike paths and the repurposing of abandoned rail lines for biking and multi-use trails. Peter also is the founder of the Center for City Park Excellence at the Trust for Public Land, which is how I originally met Peter. Um, We worked on city parks issues together, actually, at one point. So today he's here to talk with us about his book, which was published in 2021 and is entitled From Rails to Trails, The Making of America's Active Transportation Network. The book is a fascinating history of the movement to turn thousands of miles of abandoned rail lines across the U.S. into trails for use primarily by bicyclists, but also walkers, equestrians, and other recreationists. The book describes the cast of characters that pushed this movement forward, the key federal laws that enabled the movement, and it provides a summary of where things stand today. We're going to talk about all of this with Peter, so stay with us. Hello, Peter. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Margaret. So before we dive into the heart of our conversation, we always start our podcast to try to learn a little bit about our guests and kind of what motivated them to do what they do. So I know there's a little bit of this in your book at the beginning about your childhood and so forth, but I just want to ask you to tell us a little bit about how you came to work on these issues related to bicycling, parks, all of these kinds of things. Okay. Well, I grew up in New York City, which is uh, both a wonderful and a terrible place to grow up. Um, I I think of it as as very wonderful, but of course it has a lot of environmental challenges to it, a lot of which are brought on by automobile traffic. And it's also very easy to live in New York without a car. So as a child, uh, I bicycled or took the bus um and uh realized that you know the city would be so much more enjoyable if cars weren't so dominant so that that kind of inculcated my uh thinking throughout my whole life that let's look for places uh where you can get away from cars and enjoy the parks or the streets the way they were meant to be and um in uh in 1966 mayor john lindsay closed central park to cars and that was a revelation for all of us, what it's like to be in a park without cars. So I was always looking for opportunities like that. And they're very hard to come by, super hard to come by. Once cars are in, uh, they're very hard to get rid of them. But when we discovered these abandoned railroad lines, we realized, okay, cars had never used these before. They're just sitting there. The tracks have been taken out in most cases. And they're just fabulous trails to use for biking, walking, skiing, everything else on them. So I was hooked. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. And I enjoyed that in the early part of the book, you talking about your growing up in New York. That was great. So I really like this book. It's great. Um, and it was fascinating to learn about the sort of long and winding path, no pun intended, to rail trails. Um, and I actually brought back some memories for me. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I actually remember in the mid to late 80s, sort of learning first about, I, I can't remember which trail, but something about rail trails. And we, I had a new, brand new Trek bike that I was so proud of. And I was yeah. living in California and biking a lot. And I just thought it was such a great idea. And I think nowadays people probably take them a little bit for granted. There's so many all around. But I wanted you to kind of take us back, actually, it's bef- well before the 80s, to where was the first 
rail trail? What motivated somebody to do it? Can we trace back to the first one? Well, I mean, the, the very early ones were probably done without much publicity. But the, the first one that got underway in, in a sort of a higher publicity uh, standpoint was in, in the Chicago suburbs. It's called the Illinois Prairie Path. And it was launched by a wonderful woman, Mae Watts, who was a horticulturist at a uh, at a arboretum. And she wrote a charming, moving, wonderful letter to the editor. I just love that, that a letter to the editor kind of stimulated this whole movement. She wrote a letter to the editor that just grabbed people's imagination about we have this abandoned railroad corridor and it could be a wonderful place. She was a naturalist, so she was mostly thinking in terms of uh, horticulture and you know preserving butterflies and things like that. But she also talked about uh, using it and she said Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts would walk along it and things like that. It was, it was very motivational. It generated a lot of interest and a lot of uh, enthusiasm, and it was it was a, a precursor to the difficult battles to actually create these trails. So while all the people in in suburban Chicago were working to try and create this trail over a lot of uh, challenges and objections, uh, actually the state of Wisconsin in another trail swooped in and created the first what we call the first rail trail, the Elroy Sparta Trail in rural Wisconsin. Completely different dynamic. Hardly anybody lives around there, but um, it uh, it was promoted by some local uh, activists, and the state came in and said, "Let's buy this," and they did. And so that that that's what we treat as the first rail trail, and uh, it started unlike practically all the quote new ideas in America, which tend to start on the East Coast or the West Coast. This one started in the heartland, which is another thing I love. It's it's from Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, are, is where the Rails to Trails movement really started. Oh, that's interesting. So in order to have a rail trail, we have to have an abandoned rail line. And apparently, and I learned this in the book, we have a lot of them in the United States. So tell us about that. Why do we have so many abandoned rail lines? Well, the the rail industry um, was built hodgepodge by a lot of entrepreneurs, sort of like the computer industry is happening right now. Um, there was no plan. The government wasn't in, at all involved. There was cutthroat competition. There was a lot of money to be made. So people were creating railroad tracks and railroad companies willy-nilly, and a lot of them went out of business, got, got merged together, went out of business. And, and it, it, was a, it was a very exciting entrepreneurial, uh, break, what do they call it, break things and move fast or something like that. And so uh, by the year 1916, which was the uh, high point of railroading in this country, there were 254,000 miles of rail track. So the, the interstate highway system today is 42,000 miles, and there was 254,000 miles of railroad track. And gradually, they started uh, uh, going defunct because they, they couldn't make money on them. Uh, and, and, and especially in the Midwest, one reason that the Rails to Trails movement started in the Midwest is that the abandonment procedure um, sort of started in the Midwest because they had built so many tracks to serve farmers, you know, farmers taking their wagons of food to um, uh, a track 10 miles away. They just had too many tracks. So they started abandoning these tracks. And of course, at the beginning, nobody was giving them any thought, but then gradually uh, they started thinking this, these were valuable corridors to preserve. And some of them have become roads. Many of them have become roads. 
but um, we've been working to make many of them into trails. Yeah. Okay, you talk about a few key pieces of legislation, federal legislation, um, in the book that pushed the movement forward. And um, so I'm going to mention two of them and ask you to tell us more about them. So one was the 1976 Railroad Revitalization and Regulatory Reform Act, which you could <laughs> refer to as the 4R Act. That's right. That's what they called it. And then there was a um, 1983 um, amendment to the 1968 National Trail System Act. And both of those two pieces of legislation had some key components to them that helped with the Rails to Trails movement. Can you tell us about that? The 4R Act was a gigantic loss, I think $7 billion, uh, to restructure the railroad. The, the, by the 70s, the railroad system was in a mess, and Penn Central had gone bankrupt, and a lot of them had gone bankrupt, and, and it, was, it was a very difficult situation for the railroads. And so they went to Congress to try and straighten it out, and Congress had to come up with this super complicated system of merging railroads and nationalizing some of them and things like that. One guy, one staff guy, a hero of mine named Tom Allison, uh, had the idea of rails to trails and said, if we're doing all this stuff with um, uh, restructuring the railroads, let's at least get a little rails to trails experimental program into the act. So in this $7 billion bill, he put in a $5 million rails to trails program. And uh, they threw it open for general, uh, th threw it open to the country saying, if anybody has a, an abandoned track that they want to make into a trail, you know, send in an application. And they got 130 requests. They were blown away. They thought like two or three people would send something in. They got 130 requests, totaling over $70 million. Nine of those actually got funded and became uh, wonderful trails. But it also showed everybody that there was really a huge amount of latent interest in this thing. And it's not just a fluky idea. It was a great idea. So that gave it a little bit of legs. The other act, um, the trail system uh, amendments, are, were actually more important. Uh, by the late 70s and early 80s, there was a realization that the legalities concerning rail quarters were very complex. The, it's not it's not like a, a railroad corridor just automatically becomes a trail. You know, you have to figure out who owns the land and how they got it and when they got it and whether it was taken away from their grandfather uh, back when he was a farmer and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And so uh, there were a lot of lawsuits around that, which became a big problem. And so they came up with this idea of rail banking. They said, okay, the railroad system right now seems to be collapsing, but we don't know in the future whether it's going to always be like that. It might actually come back. And these corridors are tremendously valuable. They were very expensive to uh, assemble them in the first place. So let's put them into a bank. And if you use them as a trail in the interim, then they won't actually be abandoned. They'll be put into kind of a limbo state where they can be used as trails and be, be held for the possible use as a railroad corridor again in the future. And that cleared a lot of legal problems away and made it much easier uh, and more feasible for cities, counties, states, and, and even private uh, nonprofit organizations to make some of these trails. It was a sea change for us. Yeah, yeah, that was so interesting. So you already mentioned the 4R Act provided this small amount of money, but there was this huge interest, and nine projects got funded. That's right. Uh, so I just wanted to mention one of them, which we know about because it's right in our backyard, and that's the Washington and Old Dominion Trail. 
the WNOD, which I've ridden on. I know you've ridden on. <laughs> yeah, it's right near and, my house. <laughs> and that was an important one for what reason? Like why right here in the Washington area did that sort of help? So the WNOD is 44 miles long. The, the railroad was, well, actually the railroad was probably a little longer than that, but 44 miles of it was saved. The Virginia Department of Transportation grabbed a few miles of it to build a highway, and the rest of it was just sort of sitting there. And some active citizens and, and a very active park agency said this would be a wonderful trail linking all the people from Alexandria all the way out to Fairfax and Loudoun counties in the Washington suburbs. Um, so uh, the funny, the, the wonderful, it's a great trail and the, and the trail uh, agency has done a wonderful job with it. But the, the sort of magical thing about it is that a lot of Congress people, a lot of congressional staff, a lot of other government bureaucrats in around Washington that happen to have maybe play a role in some of these decision making uh, know it. And so when we used to go lobbying in Congress and saying, hi, we're here from Rails to Trails Conservancy, and people would look at us with a blank, blank stare in their eyes saying, what are you talking about? And then we would say, you know, like the WNOD, and they go, oh, the WNOD, I love the WNOD. And uh, that, you know, uh, like one trail is worth a thousand words <laughs> or a million words. And that helped us tremendously in moving this concept forward. Yeah. Well, things started to heat up in the 1980s, and that's when you co-founded the Rails to Trails Conservancy with your late colleague, David Burwell. So talk about what was going on at the time. Why did you decide to start a brand new nonprofit organization? That's a big undertaking. Um, and centered all around this Rails to Trails concept. Um, how did you and David come together? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, David and I originally met through a group at, called Environmental Action, which was a, a kind of a, a radical uh, uh, grassroots, super grassroots organization to, that grew out of Earth Day. And we were both very interested in transportation. I was very interested in bicycling, and he was very interested in in alternatives to automobiles. And so we talked about a lot of things together. We both learned about, um, well, he learned about the Rails to Trails concept from uh, hunters in uh, South Dakota, which is a really funny story because he's not, he wasn't a hunter, but but National Wildlife Federation uh, represented hunters, and they would write to them and say, you know, the only place that that bird birds can nest in all of all of the Midwest, since the rest of it is all planted and plowed are these old abandoned railroad corridors that are never plowed and they still have the original prairie on them and could you please save these railroad corridors i got involved more from uh, a trail out in seattle that gained a lot of attention uh, the burt gilman trail and um, i was very impressed with what the people in seattle were able to do so we got together on that when we first took this idea around to potential funders and other people in the environmental movement they, they said just what you said, like, how could you ever get a group going on such a super highly focused topic? You know, of course, you know, clean air, clean water, population control, all these other things, these big monumental issues uh, are important, but like rails to trails. So we, we decided to give that a test and we did a, a direct mail back back in the olden days when you did direct mail we did a direct mail campaign to some bicyclists and some hikers american hiking society 
and got a phenomenal return, like something like 8%. Usually you get 1% and we got 8%. And people are saying, this is a fantastic idea. This is like recycling. We love it. It's so doable. And, you know, you know, solving all the earth's problems uh, is too much for us, but, but saving a rail trail is something we can bite our teeth into. And so it just, it just mushroomed from there. People really love the idea. Um, all of our work was really helping local people do what they wanted to do. It was really uh, saying, you've got a good idea. It's, you, you're, you're not crazy. You've got a great idea. A few people around the country have done this same idea. Here's how they did it. Here's how we can try and help you to do it. And then we just kept spreading the word of what a good idea was. And um, it just fed on itself. People in a small town uh, are, are blown away when they find out that somebody in Washington thinks they're doing a good thing. And people in Washington are always blown away by finding out that, that people in the local districts are doing it. So it was just a marriage made in heaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love the description in the book of the early days of the organization and late night mapping sessions. And uh, I'm just going to quote this one little nugget from the book where you said you were emulating the fantasies of the railroad builders a century and a half before, sort of mapping out where these rail lines were abandoned and a bike path could go. So I don't know, just talk about this a little bit. And how did you sort of decide where to put your efforts and so forth? Did people come to you or did how did that work? It was a little bit of everything. Of course, like you're saying, we, we did have fantasies of connecting everything together, just the way the rail, you know, a lot of these railroads have names like, like Boston, Maine, and Pacific, because they, they wanted to create the, create the image that they were going to start off in Boston and one day get to the Pacific. And even the, the famous B&O Railroad, Baltimore and Ohio, you know, Ohio was at the time, Ohio was kind of like a magical destination for people in Boston to get as far as the Ohio River. So people were always thinking, and, and we were thinking the same way of keeping going west or, or east. We had to balance two things. One is the local people periodically calling us, totally out of the blue, saying we have a railroad track, or, or we just heard that our railroad is going to go out of business quick, how can we save it, and things like that. And we had to learn uh, on the fly, we had to learn what we were doing, um, or create new uh, ideas of how to do things. And then we kept getting note. We signed up to get notices from what used to be called the Interstate Commerce Commission, now the Surface Transportation Board. And um, the Interstate Commerce Commission would send out a notice. This is like super formalistic, um, unreadable piece of paper that said, on such and such a day, this particular track, which went from you know practically nowhere to practically nowhere else, is going to be abandoned. And you have 30 days to file an intent to uh, replace the railroad service with your own railroad service. You know, And so we signed up for these things and we said, well, we don't want our own railroad service, but we want to save it as a trail. And the Interstate Commerce Commission couldn't really, at the beginning, they couldn't really comprehend that. That wasn't what they were set up for. But we gradually, they gradually got to know us. And gradually, with our lawyers' leadership, we changed a lot of the rules, and they started saying, okay, first choice is a train, first choice is, is saving the railroad, and, and that's the same thing that we believed. We're pro-train. We're not trying to drive under any uh, railroad. Uh, you know, we think railroads are the most efficient way of moving people and goods, so we're in favor of trains. But if it's going to be abandoned, let's save the corridor and make it into a trail. 
And so, so it was a two-way street where some, suddenly we'd get this crazy piece of paper from southwestern Virginia or, or you know, rural Kansas someplace, two towns we never heard of, and we'd get on the phone and call these towns, anybody we could think of, the mayor or the chamber of commerce or some local environmentalist and say, do you know that your railroad is going under and in 30 days you have to make a decision? And most of them didn't know anything about it. We we, we were like the Paul Revere of uh, rail trails, <laughs> and uh, so it was a it was a it was a wonderful crazy time. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, that's great. So I want to talk about funding because there was a big sea change, I think, that happened, and and that's in 1991 with passage of what we call Ice T, which is the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act. That's right. Right. So these big transportation bills work their way through Congress every few years. And this 1991 bill included, for the first time, funding for something called transportation enhancements. And one of those enhancements was rail trails. So for the first time, I think there was a lot of money available. So can you talk about that and the significance of it? Yeah. That was another huge fantasy that environmentalists had been working on for years and years and years to open up the highway trust fund, the, the, the gas tax money that we all pay when we buy a gallon of gasoline and that had been earmarked for highway construction, billions and billions and billions of dollars that had been off limits to anything that wasn't highway construction. And it was jealously guarded by the automobile companies and the oil companies and, and the whole highway industrial complex. And um, for many years, we, we uh, the bicyclists and also the mass transit uh, constituency and walkers and others had been saying, wait a second, we're all in this transportation business together. Everybody should get some help, not just the highways. And of course, the highways were driving out mass transit and all the other uses. So finally, Senator Moynihan was the real hero on this, and, and Senator Chafee from uh, Rhode Island. And uh, they finally opened this up so that other uses could be made of it. And that was called the Transportation Enhancements. And um, it was still only a fairly small amount of this gigantic amount of money. But, but for by trail standards, it was a lot of money. And finally... Um, uh, instead of just having a good idea, it was a good idea, and there's actually federal money available, or, or federal money that went to the states, and then state money was available. So it made a huge impact. And it's continued in subsequent bills, right? Yes. These transportation bills always include this component. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Rails to Trails Conservancy, which still exists, <laughs> I've started several groups, but this is the main one that still exists, <laughs> works diligently, just diligently to keep, keep uh, those provisions in the bill because uh, the automobile industry and others uh, really would love to take them out, keep, keep trying to take them out. So it's, it's a constant fight. But by now, uh, so many people love these trails so much that even very conservative congressmen, for instance, uh, say, "Okay, we're you know we're trying to cut back on government spending, but my people love these trails, so let's let's put some money in for the trails." Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, Peter, I think I mentioned my son bicycled across the country yeah, <laughs> in twenty nineteen. So, I'm so jealous <laughs> from <laughs> New York City to Seattle, and. Um, you know, the whole family, you know, sort of participated, uh, got vicarious pleasure from that. My His dad bicycled part of it with him out in Washington State on a rail trail, actually. That's right. Yes, the Palouse to Cascades rail trail, That's I think. exactly right. Very popular one. 
Uh, and anyway, I learned during that time at, that there is an effort, of course, most many people might know this, but to have a complete rail trail network across the United States, I think. So what's up with that? Can you tell us? Do you know what the status is? Is that going to actually happen? Yes, it's definitely happening. I, I don't have the totally up-to-date numbers, but it's it's three something like 3,700 miles from they're running it, uh, you know, as the um, as the publicity campaign. They're running it from Washington to Washington, from D.C. to past Seattle uh, in Washington State, and it's something like three thousand seven hundred miles. And I think nineteen hundred, maybe, maybe they've passed two thousand already. I'm not sure the exact number, but about two thousand miles of it already exists. So in the in the parts of the country where there were was a very thick uh, network of of uh, abandoned railroads and uh, a very uh, you know, coordinated effort by a lot of the advocates. It's already in place. Um, I haven't ridden across the country, but I have ridden from from Washington D.C. to Pittsburgh, and that's the that's the you know the first leg. And then there's there's ways of getting from Pittsburgh to Cleveland, and Cleveland to Akron, and Akron to Chicago, and past Chicago. So it's it's a wonderful network that's being linked together from from different abandonments. And the goal is to get all the way. And like you said, that that cascades to Palouse Trail. So over on the West Coast, over in Washington State, they they'd already crossed their whole state uh, because they they acquired one gigantic abandonment at one fell swoop, uh, a wonderful trail that's gradually being uh, fixed up. So it's some of the intervening states in the in the you know, in the Great Plains and in the Rocky Mountain areas, it's it, there's fewer tracks and it's harder to string them together. Yeah. It's on the way, yeah. Okay. And then there's another effort called the East Coast Greenway that's kind of perpendicular to that from uh, Maine to Florida. It'll be parallel to uh, I-95 or, or US-1, old US-1, and or the Appalachian Trail. But, you know, the Appalachian Trail is in the mountains and this is sort of in the flatlands. And so that's another trail that uh, it's going to... Uh, be finished in in the not too distant future, hopefully. And we could avoid driving on I ninety five. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. I didn't know about that one, so that's really cool. So we've just about reached the end of our time. We oh, always climb. No, it goes by so fast. When we're going to close with our regular feature, Peter, that we call top of the stack. Okay. And I know you well, so I know that you're a voracious reader and you probably have a big stack. <laughs> but tell us what kind of reading or podcast or anything that you would like to share with our listeners that's on the top of your stack right now. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Well, most of my reading is pretty, you know, I'm very focused on cities. I'm very focused on parks. I'm I'm hope I'm hoping to maybe write a book about city parks. So I'm, I'm in deep in the weeds on things that your readers might uh, not consider that interesting. But in addition to that, I keep my eyes open for other things. And I, I did come across a, a very interesting book that's very relevant uh, called Stolen Focus. Some of your uh, listeners may have already seen it by a guy named Johan Hari. Um, the subtitle is Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. It's so relevant. And it's about, you know, how cell phones and social media and, and all the other um, distractions. E even if you don't have ADD, you, you become ADD because things are coming at you so fast. And he, he really take, takes us apart and shows what's going on with us and how it's affecting um, our ability to really sort of 
put our thoughts in 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 a straight line and 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 be effective with them. So I was I was very in, influenced by that. I think I need that book. <laughs> <laughs> Stolen focus. Okay, got good it. name. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well. Peter, it's been a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. Um, I'm so glad we're able to talk about your book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And um, we encourage everyone to read it, give a listen to this podcast, and then go turn to the book. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Okay. Thank you, Margaret. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.